and uh, find, some, find some lessons that, that we can learn. I'm really appreciative of Jessica sharing with us this morning about how God is working on the field in India, in a place that is very different from where we live, uh, a place where uh, being a Christian means being a minority. Uh, it could mean even uh, suffering a, a certain amount of cultural oppression and persecution. And yet, nevertheless, there is a, a growing and vibrant church that is there in the country of India. It, it puts on display very much what Jessica has described to us uh, of her own experience and, and the experience of believers around the world. It will uh, add to the color and the, and the vibrancy of this particular story out of the life of Jesus. We're, we're kind of in, in the middle of a three-part uh, looking at one particular story here in John chapter 6, whereas last week, I took you from the beginning of the chapter through verse 21 of these two miracles that Jesus accomplishes. One miracle where He, he feeds the multitudes. There's this uh, group of 5,000 men. You probably add in another 5,000 women and then a bunch of kids. You probably more or less got way more than 15,000 people that are gathered in a field who have heard about Jesus and they've come to see Him. And there's no food, and yet Jesus miraculously provides food for them by multiplying the, this little boy, he had a basket that had five loaves of bread and two fish, and Jesus miraculously feeds everybody. And then at the end of the day, uh, the, the 12 apostles go out and they get on a boat to go across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has gone up into the mountain just to take some time to himself. While they're out on the sea, a huge storm comes up. It churns around the sea. They're afraid. It says that they paddle for three or four miles in the midst of the storm, and then Jesus comes walking out on the water to them. And, of course, then again, they are afraid again because it's like here's this dude walking on the water in the middle of the ocean to them. And, and he says, don't be afraid, and they let him into the boat, and immediately the boat is at the seashore. So they see a miracle that doesn't really touch their lives, and then the apostles experience a miracle. And it, and it is this moment that I encouraged you last week that sometimes you're going to face adversity, and it's going to be in the midst of the adversity where God is going to work. You've got to embrace the adversity that's in your life because that's not a ditch to avoid but a doorway for God to work in your life. Well, now, at verse 22 here in John chapter 6, the scene returns back to the giant crowd that Jesus has miraculously fed. So it's the next day. It says there in verse 22 of John chapter 6. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea, now this is the Sea of Galilee. We refer to those things as lakes, but there's not an old ancient Greek word for lake, so they called everything a sea. Uh, the sea, they had remained on the other side of the sea where they had, there had only been one boat. And they also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. And some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum, looking for Jesus. This is where the apostles had gone, where Jesus then met them on the boat, and, and they miraculously got to the seashore. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you are looking for me, 
not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set His seal of approval on Him. Verse 28, what can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. And Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one He has sent. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you will move us from living by our feelings and by our emotions and being captured by uh, the events of the day. And Lord, help us to walk toward this place where we are fulfilling this work of God that Jesus calls us to. Father, I, I know, and we all know, that there are people in this room that have that going, that they've been going through some dark times, some uncertain moments in their lives. That they've been tempted by the same junk over and over again that has just seemed to have a lock on their life. So this morning we pray that through watching how Jesus interacts with these people, that you will help us to know how He wants to interact with us. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let me just walk back through this passage again, explain a few things, and, and share, I think, what are uh, some salient points for this hour in not just of worship, but this moment in our lives. So this is the next day, this huge crowd. Now, again, you got to think about the mass of how many people this is. Uh, well over 10,000 people. I think it's well over 15,000. If I was to make a guess, I would actually say it was probably over 20,000 people. This is a huge amount of people that Jesus has miraculously fed with just a few morsels of food, basically. Enough food for a couple of families to, to eat a meal on, and Jesus has miraculously fed all of these people. And, and so now they wake up the next morning, and they wonder, well, where did the Jesus guy go? I mean, this is the guy that we were looking for anyway. We all came to this particular place because this guy was here, and we had heard about him. And so where did he go? And they all begin to talk, and, and the rumors start to run around the camp where they are. Again, this is, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 people all camping together. And suddenly they realize that neither the apostles, the 12 particular followers of Jesus, nor the close band of believers, they're not there any longer, and Jesus is not there any longer. And they hear all the stories that, well, the followers of Jesus all went across the sea, but, but nobody saw the Jesus guy get on the boat. So they say, well, let's go all check it out. So they find some boats. They all load up. Again, this has to be a massive like armada of, of, sh of, of shipping and fishing vessels that then go across the Sea of Galilee. They all get to the other side, and they find Jesus. And what is the first question they ask? When did you get here? Now, does this not strike you as like the most useless of all questions they could have possibly asked. I mean, here's 10, 15, 20,000 people 
who have been miraculously fed by one Jewish rabbi who just said grace over five wonder loaves of bread and two smoked snook, all right? They've all eaten everything they wanted, plus, it said in the story earlier, there was enough left over where the apostles took back up 12 baskets of bread. And they don't know how Jesus got across the water without a boat, and they knew that there was a giant storm the night before, and their only question is, well, what time did you get over here? I mean, this, as I have used this phrase before, is an adventure in missing the point. All right, this is the place where you are asking all the wrong questions to exactly the right person. And so they ask, well, when did you get here? And Jesus replies to them there in verse 26, and he, and he, he graciously says, you are looking for me for all the wrong reasons. You're not looking for me because you saw the signs. Now, when Jesus uses the word sign, when the Bible uses the word sign, it doesn't mean like a yield sign at an intersection. It doesn't mean just a street sign. He's talking about a sign as a miraculous occurrence that points to the divine nature of who he is. He is talking about something that is over the top, that breaks all the laws of physics. He's talking about a miracle. Now, you and I read the Bible enough to where it's possible that we grow a little dull to the idea of miracle when it comes to these ancient events. But again, I want you to embrace with me what has happened in this story. Jesus has broken the laws of nature and physics. He has done something that is impossible. He has taken five loaves of bread and two fish, and he has fed thousands of people. This is not possible by all the laws of nature and physics and science as a whole. He has then walked on top of water. Okay, we live near the water. I've been in the water. You can't walk on water. That's not possible. And he did it in the middle of a storm. And then when he got on the boat, he instantaneously moved an entire vessel from the middle of the storm to the shore. Jesus has broken all the laws of nature. He has, he has committed this incredible, miraculous act and yet, when the people show up, Jesus reads their heart. And he says, you didn't show up looking for me because you saw these miracles and you want to know something else about me. You showed up because your bellies were filled yesterday. You showed up yesterday because you wanted to find me, but today you showed up because you just like the effects of being around me. And he says to them, don't work for the food that perishes, in verse 27, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal of approval on Him. He says, 
you're worried about the barley loaves and, and, the, and the fish that you're going to get to fill your bellies again, while meanwhile, the Son of Man, which is a messianic title of who Jesus is, he says, but meanwhile, here I am standing in front of you, the one person in all of human history that God the Father has set his seal of approval on, I'm standing right here in front of you. Be concerned about the living bread that I can give you, not the temporary bread that's just going to get you from here to dinner time. So then they ask another very ill-informed question. What can we do to perform the works of God? You're standing right in front of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the guy who just broke the laws of nature and physics to feed thousands of people and walk on water and move a boat to the seashore in the middle of a storm. You're standing in front of that guy, and your question is, Jesus, what can I do? Jesus, tell me what it is that I can do to perform the works of God. Jesus, tell me what I can do to add to the stuff you've been doing. I mean, the arrogance, I mean, the -the over-the-top ego, the, the thought that somehow in the face of the Messiah that he needs me to help him do this stuff on the earth? I mean, these people are asking all the wrong questions with all the wrong motives. So Jesus very poignantly answers them with a simple statement that has the most profound implications for all of us. When they say, what can we do to perform the works, plural, of God, Jesus replies there in verse 29, This is the work, singular, of God. Here's the one thing that you can do, that you believe in the one he has sent. There's this huge chasm in between where they are and where they've got to get. Because they want to know, what are the works that we can do? What is it that we can possess in our life that will be cool to you, Jesus? What are the things that we can hold on to and that we can do that will add to the stuff that you're doing? What is it that we can hold in our hands and hold in our lives that can, that can add on to all of this feeding and walking on water and stuff that you're up to? What are the possessions that we can have? And Jesus turns it on them. And he says, you don't need any more possessions. What you need is more surrender. You don't need more possessions. You need more surrender. Here's the work of God, and that is to believe. It is not to accomplish. It's not to impress the divine nature of who God is. It's not to add to what Jesus is doing or what he's already done. It's to believe in the one that, he, that has been sent. 
It's not to possess more stuff and to have more skills and to, and to be spiritually hip and cool or religiously traditional and austere. It is to believe in the one that has been sent. You see, ultimately, the crowd's motivations unveil for, some, uh, for all of us something about their heart and our heart. They were motivated by curiosity and cravings. This is their spiritual motivation. It is curiosity. How did Jesus do this stuff? How did you get across the ocean? When did you get here? Give me the little details about everything, Jesus. And cravings. They, they did not desire the giver. They desired the gift. It is the same in many of our lives. We oftentimes have a deeper desire for the healing than we have for the healer. We have a, a deeper desire for the, the gifts than the giver. We have a, a deeper desire for the blessing rather than the one who blesses. We have a deeper desire for having strength rather than the strong one. We have a deeper desire for forgiveness than the forgiver. We want all of the blessings without having the accountability of the one who bestows the blessings. And rather than being motivated by curiosity and cravings, we need to be the people who are motivated and that our lives are colored by faith and faithfulness, by believing in the one that has been sent. We get so wrapped up in trying to figure out what it is that God's going to give me next. What it is that God's going to, how it is that God's going to deliver me out of this thing. What it is that he's going to make neat and clean and, and pristine. And he's going to make all of the paths even and, and nice to walk on. And doorways are going to swing open. And, and the windows of heaven are going to be flung wide open. And, and all of the lavish blessings are going to be poured out. And we jump ahead to all the stuff we can get rather than focusing on the one who now possesses us for his own love and for his own affections and for his own glory. We want to be the people who focus on the nouns when Jesus is trying to focus us on the verbs, not the works that you can have and that you can own and that you can you know, possess before God, but the verb of having faith, of believing in Jesus, of trusting in Jesus, of surrendering to Jesus. And it is this moment where we are confronted with whether or not we have asked the wrong questions and moved in life with the wrong motivations. And, and a story like Jessica, though she, uh, she blushes at the idea of being held up as an illustration and an example to us, and that's why we can, but an illustration like Jessica's who is willing to serve even in difficult circumstances. But she, along with all of us, would very quickly point to the pastors and the believers that are there in Southeast Asia, that are serving and living out their faith in, in circumstances where there might be poverty, there could be rejection, there, there could be any amount of persecution that would come upon them. So how does that translate to Bradenton, Florida, to Manatee County? How does this translate into the place where we live, among the, na among the neighbors that, that we love, among the family members that we have, among the church family that we're a part of? 
I mean, we've got to decide that we're going to that we're going to be utterly and completely beholden to the giver of all the good gifts. And whatever the gifts are, we will gladly receive them and we will thank him for each one of them. And whatever gifts we don't receive, then we will not be bitter, we will not hesitate, we're not going to hold back our worship. Instead, we will say, God, whatever gift you decide to lavish on me, I'll take. Let me remind you that last week in the story where Jesus feeds this huge amount of people, he could have fed them anything. I mean, he's busy breaking all the laws of physics and nature in the moment. He could have transformed the bread and the fish to steak and potato dinners like any good southerner would want. He could, have trans, he could have transformed it into any banquet feast that he wanted to give them. But he gave them fish and bread. And their bellies were filled. And they were impressed. And they were so impressed, they wanted to go back the next day and get some more. And instead of seeking out wisdom and insight and even recognizing the nature of the Savior that was in front of them, they just wanted more bread. What is it that you want more of? I mean, really. Now, this is a place where you cannot answer out loud. This is a place where you have to dig into your soul. What is it that you want more of? Is it that what you you really desperately want more of is just, I want to go back to whatever you define as the good old days? Is it that what you want more of is just a deeper level of satisfaction at work? Is it that what you want more of is really it's a hidden sin in your life that nobody knows about, but you keep going back like it's the well of life for you? It's the only place that you get satisfaction. Maybe it's some overindulgence of food. Maybe it's some temptation in the middle of the night. Maybe it's, a, it's lust or anger or bitterness, but it's the only thing that you ever find any relief or satisfaction from. What is it that you want more of? Or is it that you have decided, no matter what my flesh cries out for, whether my flesh cries out for all the wrong things, which is likely the case, no matter what it is that I think that I can accomplish in this life, what I truly and utterly want more of is Christ. I want more of Jesus. That's all I want more of. And whatever the trappings of this world have to offer is fine because what I really want is just more of Jesus. Because here was a few thousand people that had the opportunity to get more of Jesus, but all they wanted was another loaf of bread. And everything else that you want in this life is not even wonder bread. It's off-brand Walmart bread. It's like low quality, been on the shelf for too long. Everybody kept moving it around to reach to the back of the shelf where all the fresh stuff is. 
It's the, it's the stale bread that needed to go to the, to the ministry some other time ago to give it away. It's the bread that's just right on the verge of getting mold inside of the package bread. Everything else you want is just stale bread. And so the question is, are you in these moments of life being driven just by a simple spiritual curiosity and by cravings that are going to get you nowhere in this life? Or are you totally and completely desperate for Jesus? Because I can tell you something that we all know, and that is if all you want is bread every day, you're going to be exasperated. Every day, you're going to get tired. Every day, you're going to get worn out. Every day, you're going to be hunting for more bread. Every day, you're going to have to find another loaf. Every day, you're going to have to cut off another slice. Every day, you're going to have to figure another way to fix it. Every day, you're going to come up with another idea of how it can be satisfactory. Or... You can be desperate for the presence of Jesus in your life. And if you will be, it will be contagious. If you will be, it will be evident. If you will be, God will do a work in your life like you have never experienced before. If you will be desperate for Jesus. He said, this is the work of God. This is the only place in all four of the Gospels where Jesus makes this statement. It is the only place in all of the entire Bible that Jesus uses this phrase, this is the work of God. It is a place where we need to tune in, lock down, underline it, star it, circle it, get your grandma to make a cross stitch of it, and hang it in your living room. This is the work of God, to believe in the one that he has sent. I want to ask you this morning just to enter into a time of prayer with me. I want us just to reflect on this and to very quietly and very um, intensely respond to this call from Jesus today. So will you bow your heads with me? I, I, we're going to just take some time to pray together this morning as a response to this passage. It, it is not something that we need to take lightly. So let me just guide you through some, some points of prayer about this. Father, as we take these moments now to pray before you and to lift up our hearts before you. Lord, for some of the men and women and the students in this room, this is going to be a new experience of, of a little bit longer time of prayer than they've been used to maybe lately. For others, this is going to be refreshing. For some, it's going to be challenging. And so, Father, I just would ask that for everybody who is in the room today, that you would give to us just a sense 
a, a true palpable sense of the presence of the Spirit in our lives. Friends, let me ask you, just continuing with your heads bowed, just in a moment of response and prayer.